reading from Luke chapter 2, verse 22 to verse 40. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. The children's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There also was a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then she was a widow until she was eighty-four. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Hello Dan, it's Joe here I hope you're keeping well It's the 21st of December And now they're ringing the last bells If I get good behaviour I'll be out of here by July Won't you kiss my kids on Christmas Day Please don't let them cry for me I guess the brothers are driving down from Queensland Stella's flying in from the coast They say it's gonna be 100 degrees Even more maybe But that won't stop the roast And who's gonna make the gravy now? 
been a long text the same. Just add flour, salt, a little red wine, and don't forget a dollop of tomato sauce for sweetness and an extra tang. Give me love to Angus and a Frank and Dolly. Tell them all I'm sorry. I screwed up this time and look after Rita. I'll be thinking of her early Christmas morning when I'm standing in line. I hear Mary's got a new boyfriend. I hope he can hold his own. Do you remember the last one? What was his name again? What was his problem? Never got Sylvester Stallone. And Roger, well I'm even gonna miss Roger. Cause there's sure as hell no one in here that I wanna fight. I pray to baby Jesus, have a Merry Christmas. I'm really gonna miss it All the treasure and the trash Later in the evening I can just imagine You put on Junior Mervrin And push the tables back And you'll dance with Rita I know you really like her Just don't hold her too close So oh, brother, please don't stab me in the back I didn't mean to say that it's just my mind, it plays up and multiplies these matters. Turns imagination into fact. You know, I love her badly. She's the one that saved me. I'm gonna make some gravy. I'm gonna taste the fat. I'll tell her that I'm sorry. Yeah, I love her badly. Tell them all I'm sorry. Kiss the sleeping children for me You know one of these days I'll be making gravy I'll be making plenty I'm gonna pay them all back I'll pay them all, pay them all, pay them all, pay them all back Fantastic. I don't know, I'm happy to, I'll just go and sit down. Marcus can keep on singing. We'll just keep doing that. Paul Kelly, who wrote that song, he's probably, he's got to be Australia's greatest ever songwriter, doesn't he? That's his take on Christmas. He actually put it out in a Christmas album, a Christmas album by Paul Kelly, of all things. And I think he really nails Christmas in a whole bunch of ways. So one, the, the idea that Christmas is all about family. The family's flying in, Frank and Dolly and Stella's flying in from the coast, Angus, Rita. The idea that Christmas is about family. And we've all got to, we've got to have the roast, even though it's 100 degrees outside, although today's pretty much the perfect day for a roast, isn't it? 
And every family's got to have their secret recipe. It, it may not be gravy. In my family, the secret recipe was my mother's, still is in fact, my mother's secret Christmas pudding recipe. I think it was handed down to her and she's never told anybody. People have asked her for it and she will whisper it with her dying breath to her chosen heir. She'll draw them in close to her lips and then she'll say, I bought it from Aldi. That'll be... And I love in this song, every family does it their own way. That, the, at the end of the song, there's this beautiful image of putting on Junior Murray, pushing back the, the tables and everyone dancing, and that might be your thing, it's not ours. Board games, that, that might be your family thing. Every family's got their own Christmas traditions, don't they? So when I was growing up, we always all had to stir the Christmas pudding. My mum's thing was that it was about stirring the love into the Christmas pudding. I think she was just too lazy to stir it herself. But that's all we all had to do. That was the Christmas tradition. Another family I know always decorates their Christmas pineapple. <laughs> when they got married, they were too poor to afford a tree, and so they got a pineapple and they decorated that. And now, decades later, of course they got a Christmas tree, but actually the whole family loves the pineapple a lot more than that. So there are a whole bunch of things that he really knows, but the thing that I think we most resonate with that song is that Paul Kelly, being Paul Kelly, he just can't help but inject this note of realism in there, can he? There's always this gritty kind of reality to Paul Kelly's songs, and so, yes, the song is about Christmas, and it's about family, and it's about tradition, and about gravy, but if you listen closely, and you, may, you probably know the song, the guy's actually singing from jail. He's got six, seven months left to serve, and what he's singing about is the Christmas that he can't be at this year. And he's telling his brother to give his kids this big kiss on Christmas Day, and don't let them cry too much for me, and don't stab me in the back with my wife. And he says, look, tell them I'm so sorry that I so messed this up, but I will be there next year, and I will make it up to everyone. And it's funny, I think that that's why, it's so not Christmas, is it? But I think that's why we love this song. I think we love this song so much because he's not singing about the sappy commercial Christmas that you see on TV. We, you know that picture you see on TV in the ads where there's the perfect family in the perfect house opening their perfect presents and they're all dressed perfect and they all look perfect and that's not my family. My family's not perfect like that. No, my family's full of stories of divorce and brokenness. That's my family. In fact, that's most of our families, isn't it? To some degree. We've all got that person who's not allowed to come to Christmas because they're not getting on with that person or this year we've all got families that are separated. How is your family broken like the song? Is it someone's sick? Is it someone's not talking to someone and they haven't talked to that person since Christmas 30 years ago? It's kind of the world we live in at the moment, isn't it? Especially this year. I mean, what a year we have had. Bushfires in January, COVID in March, economic downturns, race rights, a US election that just seemed to go on for decades. More than ever, the world actually seems like a pretty broken place, doesn't it? It actually feels like that song. And look, in the face of all of that, it feels like Christmas lacks a realism that that song has, right? The song has this, this real sense of realism, but it feels like Christmas is actually just pretending. Christmas is the one day of the year when we pretend that there's nothing wrong. 
that it's a world of peace and love and goodwill to all mankind, and we pretend there's nothing wrong with our families, and we pretend there's nothing wrong with us. And then, after this one day of make-believe, we go back to the real life. That's what Christmas feels like most years, doesn't it? And I think it's kind of put in stark contrast for us this year, because the real life we're going back to is so much harder than the perfect Christmas. And so you kind of think, well, what, what can Christmas actually fix? How is Christmas going to deal with, how's, how's having a barbecue or roast beef with gravy actually going to deal with things like COVID and race riots? It can't, can it? Well, look, in our passage today, what we're going to see is that Christmas is not about running from the problems of the world. Christmas is about solving the problems of the world. Christmas isn't actually about pretending. Christmas is God solving the problems of the world. It's God's answer to the brokenness of the world. And we're going to look at it from a part of the Christmas story that we don't often read. Normally, the, the, the favorite bits of the Christmas story are, you know, the manger and the animals and those kinds of things. We're going to read a bit of the Christmas story that you don't often read because it's not especially romantic. It was read to us on the screen a little bit earlier. It's in Luke chapter 2. If you can't see it, give the person next to you a bit of a nudge. I'll read it to us. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, if you're following on, just slide down to sentence 36. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. And she'd lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped God day and night, fasting and praying. And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So to orient you to the story, this is about six weeks after Jesus was born. He's still that very little baby. So right about now, Mary and Joseph, they are right in the middle of it. If you've had kids, do you remember the six-week period? You're right in the middle of sleepless nights and nappies and breastfeeding. They've probably been reading the parenting books. They're wondering why Jesus isn't sleeping through because their neighbors around the road, their baby's sleeping through. And Mary and Joseph have to take a trip up to the capital, to Jerusalem. The last thing you want to do when you've got a newborn, right? Because they have to present Jesus to the temple because that was what you did back then. You, when you had your first child, you took them up to the temple and you would offer a sacrifice, not the kid, you'd offer something else in favor of the kid. And, and so Mary and Joseph head off to the capital, to the temple. And we meet two people there whose lives really do kind of reflect the brokenness of the world. Simeon and Anna. Both of them kind of have broken lives. So look at Anna in sentence 36, if you've got it. She'd lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. Now, you just know that there's a fairly tragic story behind that, don't you? In the world that they lived in, marriage was seen as God's blessing, especially because to be a widow, to be a single woman, actually made you very vulnerable in a world without social safety nets. And so here is Anna, 
after this little brief period, seven years of happiness, now she has been a widow for, what, 60 years? Life has not treated Anna well. Everyone would have seen her as almost cursed by God. And you just know that as she looks back on those 84 years of her life, this is not the life she imagined on her wedding day, is it? And now she's an old lady and Simeon's an old man and both of them are longing for better times for them and especially for their people Israel. See, just have a look in sentence 25, what Simeon is waiting for. Sentence 25, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's such a strange phrase, isn't it? Simeon is waiting for the, the consolation or the comforting of Israel. That's what consolation means. It, it means relief. It means cheering up. Because, see, it actually wasn't just Simeon and Anna. Life at this point in history, for all of God's people, was actually really miserable. Simeon and Anna, they're kind of of symbolic of their entire nation. It's a long story, but basically, by the time Jesus was born, life for God's people Israel was incredibly tough. Because even though they were God's people, they were actually a conquered nation. They'd been conquered first by the Babylonians, and then the Greeks came through and they wiped everyone out, and then the Romans had come through about 150-odd years before Jesus. And so for 500 years now, this Israel, God's people, have been a broken, downtrodden, defeated, depressed group of people. And when you think about it, 2020 has been hard enough on us, just one year. There have been some great memes across this year. I can't see the screens, but I don't know, hopefully you guys are actually starting to see some. There have been some great memes about how hard 2020 has been on us. I I think you can see the Julia Roberts one. Isn't it amazing how much Steven Tyler, who's the lead singer of Aerosmith, looks like Julia Roberts, right? I'd love to say this next image reflects my COVID experience, but the fact is I never looked like the pre-COVID one, and I'm only heading more into the the kind of fat Thor territory. Mind you, I reckon in some ways 2020 hasn't actually been so bad. This next image, I think, pretty well summed it up for me. Because I've got four kids. Funny though, Dave was talking about his experience. Dave has teenagers, we have teenagers. Uh, Dave had, they had, um, uh, was it croissants you had this morning? So did we. Ours were from Baked Uprising, just a hint, amazing. But whereas our teenagers slept in, we have a nine-week-old puppy back to 5.30 in the morning wake up. There is a reason why puppies are cute, because this morning we wanted to punt him over the back fence at 5.30 in the morning. But that that image pretty much describes my COVID experience. With four kids, I never go out on a Friday night anyway. Look, we think 2020 has been hard. Imagine that for 500 years. Imagine being part of a nation that for 500 years has been depressed and downtrodden and defeated. And what made it all so much worse was that this had come from God. Israel were God's people and God was punishing them because they'd rebelled against Him. They'd been worshipping the gods of the neighbouring nations. They'd been really unjust and they'd been persecuting the poor and that's why God had sent the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans. Israel had been not just in a COVID year, they'd had 500 years of punishment and judgment. And this old man, Simeon, 
is waiting for the moment when things are going to get better. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel, the time when God was going to comfort His people. Down in sentence 38, Anna's waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Redemption means rescue, it's the same thing. Both Simeon and Anna, the whole nation, were waiting for the people to be rescued from this miserable life they lived in. You see, in a funny way, Anna and Simeon's world in that Christmas is not so different to ours, and not all that different to Paul Kelly's song. See, we look at our world and our families in 2020, and we think there's so much here that's broken, there's so much that I'd love to change, there's so much that's not right, and so did they. See, the fact is, while some years are worse than others, the world's actually been pretty broken for a long time now, hasn't it? And here's the thing, Christmas is not about pretending that everything is fine. No, Christmas is God's answer to that brokenness. Because at Christmas, God sent His King. So, just have a look in sentence 26, what God had promised Simeon. It had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So, God promised that Simeon was going to see these better days, these consolation days, because Simeon would not die until he'd seen God's Christ, which is the word for king. See, God had promised that one day he was going to send a king into the world, and this king was not going to be like every other leader. I mean, what a year we've had for leadership, right? It's been a year where basically our trust and our respect in leaders has pretty much diminished across the year. Some outstanding people, but God's king was actually going to make the world a better place. God's king was going to be an extraordinary leader. You can see up on the screen how he's described in the Old Testament. He won't judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he'll judge the needy. With justice he'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he'll slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. See, God was going to send a king who would fix the world. He wouldn't be corrupt and he wouldn't be fooled either. He wouldn't take bribes, he wouldn't be tricked, he'd make wise decisions and righteous decisions, he'd be everything we actually want in a leader. And God said to Simeon, before you die, you're going to lay eyes on him. Before you close your eyes for the last time, you are going to see my answer to the brokenness of this world. You are going to see my King. What an extraordinary thing to be looking forward to. And look what happens down in sentence 27. Moved by the Spirit, Simeon went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you've prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. 
Simeon sees Jesus and he takes his little baby, this little six-week-old baby in his arms and he says, now I can die a happy man because I have seen God's salvation. I've seen God's king. I've seen God's answer to the misery and the brokenness of this world. I've seen what Anna's looking forward to. This little baby is going to fix the world. And I thought, you can imagine, right, what Mary and Joseph are thinking at this moment, can't you? I mean, Luke actually tells us, if you look down in sentence 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Mary and Joseph are amazed. See, at this point, they're thinking, what, our baby? Do all this? We'd be happy if he just stopped puking on us, let alone save the world. But Simeon says, yes, your baby. Your baby is the consolation of Israel. Your baby is the answer to the world's problems. Imagine if somebody said your child was going to fix the world. I've got four kids. I don't honestly expect any of them to fix the world. Break some of it, maybe, yes. But I don't expect my world to, my children to be world beaters. Really, to be honest, all I want for my children is that they'll follow Jesus and I'd kind of like them to be happy if possible. I mean, every parent wants their kid to be happy, right? But what's funny is that's the one thing Simeon doesn't promise. Even though he's God's king, Simeon says Jesus is going to have this incredibly turbulent life. So look in sentence 34. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your soul too. See, Jesus may be the answer to God's, it may be God's answer to the world's problems, but Simeon says his life is going to be turbulent. It's going to be controversial. Some people are going to hate him and speak against him. And wouldn't that last sentence just fill any parent's heart with dread? A sword will pierce your own soul too. And all that's exactly what Jesus' life was like, isn't it? Jesus did incredible miracles. He fixed brokenness wherever he went. He healed sick people. He fed poor people. He even raised dead people. Everywhere you turned, what, everywhere you turned, what you saw Jesus doing was being God's king, fixing a broken world. But even as he did that, he divided people. Because even as he did do that, he called out corruption. And he called out hypocrisy. And he challenged people's complacency. So he did all of these good things, but when you think about it, you can't be good in a broken world and not speak against the brokenness. And that's what Jesus did, and so some people hated him for it. They hated him enough to kill him. And so by the time you get to the other end of Luke's story, what you see is something you would never have expected if you didn't know it already. And that is Jesus hanging on a cross and a sword piercing his own side. And just like Simeon said, a sword piercing the soul of Mary who was there and watched her own son die a horrible death. You would never have picked that end from that beginning, would you? You would never have guessed that that's where the six-week-old baby, who was going to fix the problems of the world, what Jesus' death looks like is actually more brokenness of the world, isn't it? What Jesus' death looks like is just one more way 
that the world is mixed up and broken and horrible. But what Jesus' death really was, was the moment when God fixed the world. Jesus' death was the moment when God's King fixed the world. When God's King fixed the problem of evil. Because when Jesus died, that was the moment when God's King paid for evil. Because, see, that's actually how Jesus fixes the world. He pays for it. That's what Jesus' death was. See, it was always God's plan to send His King. It was always God's plan that that King would do amazing things. And it was always God's plan that that King would ultimately die a horrible death in our place to pay for our evil. Jesus' death was a swap. We, all of us, every single human being, had done the wrong thing. We've all contributed to the brokenness of the world. But Jesus took the penalty for it. Because the thing we have to realize, isn't it, the brokenness isn't just out there. The brokenness is in here as well, isn't it? That is, if you were to ask, what is wrong with the world this Christmas? Some of the things are out there. I mean, I didn't cause COVID. But at least part of the answer to what's wrong with the world is me. I'm what's wrong with the world. Because I've hurt people and I've lied. And I've hit people and I've hated. I'm part of the gritty reality. And Jesus never did any of those things. He was always God's perfect king. And he died in our place. That really did happen. He died in your place. He died to bring peace between God. And what's more... He died that we might have a future in heaven where the reality is not gritty but perfect. In heaven there will be no COVID, there will be no brokenness, there will be no tears, there will be no evil. Heaven will be the ultimate consolation for hurting people. And at the end of this year, doesn't your heart actually yearn for that? See, I think most years... I get to the end of the year and I think, well, yeah, heaven would be nice, but it's actually been a pretty good year. Especially because the end of the year for us, it's summer, it's Christmas, it's lovely. And we live in Newcastle, those of us who live here. This year, I think of heaven, I go, wow, you know, bring it on. (laughs) Because this year, we've really had a taste of how gritty the reality can be. Don't you want a world without pain? Don't you want a world without suffering? Well, without conflict and evil? It will not happen in this life. Jesus has bought it for us in the next life. All you have to do is trust Him. Trust that He died to take your evil and follow Him as your King. And then along with Simeon and Anna, you can have an eternity in heaven with a good King. See, some people look out on Christmas and it really does just look like pretending. Pretending this one day of the year that the world isn't as junked up as it looks. What we see when we look at Christmas is the birth of the King who would die to fix the world. 
and who's coming back to take us to a perfect world that'll never be broken. Do you know this, Jesus? Why not get to know him? I think he's the most extraordinary man. At lunch today, ask the Christian who brought you along here to tell you about, ask them to explain Jesus to you. Or come, better still, come on back. We've got a great series coming up in January that is built around the idea of hope. We're looking at, especially start of a new year, we're always filled with hope at the start of the year, we're looking at the hope of a fresh start. And we're looking at the hope for a better world, hope for broken relationships, a hope for rest. And what we're going to see is that Jesus really does offer hope. Jesus offers a better reality to anything else that we would ever compare him against. Why not come along? We are convinced that Christmas is about more than just pretending. I'm about to pray, but Merry Christmas. I hope you have a great lunch. It's actually a good one for a roast beef, isn't it? Or roast pork. Why don't you pray with me? Our God, we thank you that nothing about Christmas is pretending. We thank you for the birth of Jesus, the great King. And this year, more than any year, we can see that the world is actually a broken place. We've been so blessed for so long, particularly in our part of the world, we haven't had to suffer. But now we're beginning to see, and we have seen this year, how broken the world is. And so we thank you that Jesus came. We thank you that he died for the way that we have broken the world as well, for the way we've rejected you and rebelled against you. Thank you that Jesus offers an eternity of perfection, of goodness, of love and laughter and happiness and joy. And we thank you that this is a reality. And we thank you that at Christmas, we're not just celebrating the presence, we're not just celebrating the family, we're celebrating the hope. Amen.